the, um, the value we're looking at this morning is the value of worship and how we as a church should value and embrace the concept of worship. And many of us, when we're young Christians, we think of worship as something that happens at a venue on a Sunday. It's uh, praise and worship. When I was a teenager, we used to always combine those terms, praise and worship, and then we used to talk about praise and worship as something that was musical. And it is true that that is part of our worship, and I'm going to talk about that partly this morning, but I'm going to talk in broader terms as well about how we as a people, as a community, should carry a culture of worship in our lives as one of our values that's deeply held. And uh, you would think it's, it's automatic. Well, in some ways, worship is automatic, but the type of worship God's looking for isn't necessarily automatic to a human being. But we'll get more into that in a moment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word this morning, I ask that your Holy Spirit would minister to us. I ask that you would open our ears and our understanding and that you would fashion our hearts so that we would be more like Jesus and more pleasing to you, Heavenly Father. Amen. So, human beings, we as, as creatures, were actually created to worship. In other words, it's in our very design. When God made human beings, they, they were creatures who had this propensity or this, this capacity and inclination uh, to worship. So we are beings that are made to worship. And of course, the one that we're supposed to worship is the invisible, almighty, true, living God who is spirit. And the problem we have is that he's invisible. So worship must, by its very nature, be by faith. You have to believe that he is there in order to worship him. And of course, he says that in his word, that without faith, it's impossible to please him. And it starts with actually just believing that he exists, and even though we don't see him with our eyes. But human beings are created to worship, and they worship enthusiastically. If you look at history, right back to the earliest records of human beings, there are these artifacts of worship in societies. As soon as they formed or settled or built, there were religious symbols and things that showed people's devotion to gods, to the act of worshipping something. And some of that worship, when I say it was enthusiastic, I mean it was extreme. Some people would throw a child into a volcano as an act of worship to a god. I don't know what kind of emotional component there was, but I'm sure there was some kind of a sense of deep sacrifice taking place. Real cost. But it's revolting. I mean, it's, it's disgusting that a, a parent would give up a child and throw it in a volcano or whatever for a god who's actually a demon. I mean, some part of us looks at it and thinks, that's barbaric. And a lot of the early worship practices in, in, in human history were scary stuff, bloody, messy, barbaric. And I think God even came into that paradigm and led people forwards from there. So we understood the need for sacrifice. And so the Old Testament is also a bloody story full of animals being slaughtered and burnt and blood being sprinkled and all kinds of things. But God leads people through the representation of what those things mean, the seeking for atonement. And then he finally shows us Christ, whose blood was shed as the final sacrifice and the fulfillment of that atonement. And the right offering was made to God once and for all 
So those offerings don't happen that way anymore. But have we then become too sophisticated to worship with a sense of conviction or a sense of it interferes with my life and costs me something, a sense of passion or enthusiasm that I'm making worship to the living God? I think that has happened to some extent, that people have moved out of the bloody, messy, barbaric forms of worship that you might get in ancient history into a modern sophistication where everything is really centered around me, my comfort and convenience and whatever is, you know, feels good for me. And so worship could become very much an entertainment environment where people are experiencing worship that they enjoy and the entire system is set up around that. Lights and smoke and the most expensive equipment and the best musicians. And you might as well say it's a free rock concert. You didn't pay your ticket price really, but you enjoyed it. And you come out of there saying, wow, that worship was awesome. Is that really what worship is? We speak of worship experiences in modern churches. And it's a very dangerous te territory you're on because... It's becoming very me-serving and me-centric, and that's, that's something that we have to really think about when we talk about worship. Worship is not for us, it's for God. Yes. He doesn't need it, but He commands it. Now, people worship, and when they worship, they're enthusiastic about something. So, if you love soccer, you worship soccer to some extent. You, you're enjoying it, but you're also stood up by it and you give time to it and you you know all about it and then when you're actually watching a game you're, you're you're invested in it and eventually your team scores and you cheer and that's like spontaneous worship you've seen something done well and it's going the way you want and you celebrating so the question if you want to know what is it that you worship you should be asking questions of yourself like what is it that makes me the most enthusiastic what is it that gets me fired up? I mean, to some degree, South Africans worship cars. Now, not in the kind of bow down to them idle, except, yes, they actually do. They'll get on their hands and knees and scrub under the wheel arch to keep that thing shiny and clean. It's more than a mode of transport to a South African. It's a status symbol. It's a passion. It's a prize. It's a pride. It's my car. And this also leads to some serious conflict. If someone touches your car, uninvited it's serious i mean if a guy so much as puts his hand on your car you want to punch him because he is touching something that you are passionate about it could well be an idol and in many things in our lives when we're too passionate about it it's a sign of idolatry but there is one for whom all worship is due god who we should be that enthusiastic about that like a south african feels about his car but multiplied ten times over, you should feel about your God, who is worthy. So people worship with enthusiasm, and people also worship sometimes out of fear. In Africa and many places where there's uh, this belief in the spirit realm that has an influence over the, the living realm, we see people who effectively are caught up in this place where they're constantly following customs, traditions, avoiding the taboos in order to keep the spirits happy. And so there's all this fear wrapped up in their lives that's driving them to make sacrifices. And then in the West, we interpret it slightly differently. We, 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 we also have fears and we also 
provide a kind of a framework to, to deal with it, in which case we get insurance and healthcare, and we put our hopes in science and medicine, and we're terrified of what we can't control. So we work very hard for all these financial stabilities so that we cannot be poor, because we're terribly afraid of being poor. And so there's fear driving a whole lot of what people care about, they, they're worried and concerned about. And I don't think God wants us to be so worried and concerned about ourselves or our financial status or our health. If we trust Him more, it's like we fear less about those things. So to, to some extent, in, in whether you're African or American or Asian, it doesn't matter. You have to also look at your life and identify the things you fear if you want to know if you're worshipping correctly. Because I know if I worship God correctly, that He says His perfect love casts out fear and I should trust Him that He would provide for me. So I shouldn't be fearing about money and clothes. And th there are scriptures for this that say you should actually not be anxious about stuff. And so again, if I, if I have a, a life that's ruled to some extent by fear, then possibly even the thing I'm fearing is a bit of an idol in my life. Like being financially stable could be an idol. It could stop you from going to the nations. It could stop you from giving up your life and becoming a, an, a, a missionary. Or it could stop you from being free in some way or other. So people worship out of fear. What do you fear? They worship their idols. What are your idols? What are the things that you need to have in order for your life to have meaning? Do you have to have health? Amazingly, many of the great, great heroes of the faith in history, if you look at their lives, they were far from perfect physically. There were guys who had ailments their whole lives that God didn't heal. And, and so again, like, are those guys now exempt from being commanded to have joy? What do you do when you carry a burden like a propensity for or a tendency to be maybe up and down emotionally? Some people carry that burden. Or maybe you're carrying a burden of you know, some physical ailment and it just never goes away. Maybe you've struggled with uh, depression. All these things happen. And when we've put all our hope in our bodies or our health, then I think we can end up in a kind of a joyless place, feeling sorry for ourselves. And yet history shows us great men of faith carried remarkable burdens like that and they still declared worship for God. So how would, how would you define worship? It's, it's what you ascribe worth to. It's what you give value to. And if you give ultimate value to your physical well-being, you'll protect yourself at all costs. If you give ultimate value to your health, you will be totally depressed when your body starts failing, especially with old age. And in fact, someone once said that it was old age and its ailments that is like the final preparation for heaven. It convinces us to let go of hoping in this stuff of this age in which we live, this world in which we live. So if worship is worship, it's what you ascribe highest value to, then I should say we ascribe 
highest value to God and in response we praise Him. Praise is a response and it should never be something that you have to force. Uh, I've said this recently that if you see something incredible you go wow spontaneously. So when we see more of God our response should be to praise Him. He is exalted above all gods. And I'm going to read Psalm 96 verse 4 and 5. In Psalm 96 verse 4 and 5 it says, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. So there's many other things that might have value in people's eyes. Whether you're an ancient idol worshipper or whether you're a modern person with sophistication, there's still rival gods. There's still these things that try to take your devotion. But scripture tells us, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. So he's the creator God who created everything. That the psalmist is implying there that there is the uncreated God who is the author of creation. So you would be falling short if you worshipped anything from creation. Because he is greater than everything. The Lord made the heavens. And Psalm 97 verse 9 says, For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. This is a view of God that we need to carry. And in this church, this is one of our values. A high view of God. A view of God that ascribes to Him majesty and glory and honor and power and radiant splendor and every superlative adjective you can think of to say how great God is. You, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. That should be our meditation. God Himself commanded His people in Exodus giving the law in Exodus 20 verse 3. I'll read Exodus 20 verse 3 and 4 and 5. God said, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is interested in us being devoted to Him because He is the very best thing. The amazing analysis of the law is that it's good for a society. When you come and read the Ten Commandments, when you're immature, you think, Oh man, God's so hard. He's giving us all these rules. We have to just don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery, don't, you know, like, God's taking away all the fun in life. I mean, that's what my student Christian association teacher said to us when we were in high school. He said, Jesus takes all the fun out of sin. And he was right, because the problem with becoming a Christian is you can never enjoy sin anymore. But when you're not a Christian, you enjoy sinning, you enjoy having pleasure, so you want to sleep with your boyfriend because it actually feels awesome and then when you become a Christian it's like eh, now I know that's unholy and not right and 
suddenly Jesus took all the fun out of sin. Now this is true. But what God actually wants is far greater and far better than you realize. Because when you're immature, you look at the, the law as a set of rules that restrict you. But when you understand how good God is, you'll see that the law is given as a set of rules that give you the best life you could possibly have. So if we could rid this world of stealing, just that, do not steal, if we could rid this world of stealing, what would it be like? Look at these bars. I hate them. There will be no bars on windows in heaven because there won't be any stealing. When God said don't steal, what He was actually saying is you could have an awesome community. If you would stop stealing, then everyone would have greater peace, security, freedom, happiness. Their stuff would stay, it wouldn't walk away with its own legs. Like if I leave my iPad here on my chair for like a week, it won't be there anymore. An iPad does not move on its own. But it will grow legs and leave. If you just leave it on the side of the road, people will take it. But if you knew that you never had to worry about anything ever being stolen, what would life be like? So much better. And if you knew that you could get on well with the people around you, if you would just stop coveting, don't covet, says the Lord. Don't, be, don't look at your neighbor's donkey and say, I wish my donkey was as good as that donkey. That's like when you look at the cars and you see, wow, that car is so cool. And then suddenly there's this comparison and there's insecurity in me because I'm not as good as him because he earns more money than me. And his life is better than my life because his toys are bigger than my toys. What would life be like if we could rid this world of envy? It would be awesome. So when God said don't envy, He's actually telling you there's a magnificent way to build a community. Every one of His laws is good. His plans for us are so awesome. And so when He says you should have no other gods before me and don't worship other stuff, what He's actually saying is you'd have the most spectacular time if you could just settle this issue in your life. I'm going to read from Psalm 115 verse 1. I'll read a lot of verses from Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. See, our God is so awesome that you can't even see Him because if you could see Him, you could shoot at Him, pin Him down, control Him, but He's invisible spirit, He's eternal, He's omnipresent, which means He's everywhere at the same time, He's omniscient, He knows everything. So uh, the nations might come and say, Ah, oh, come on, you can't even prove God exists. That's exactly what makes God so awesome. That you can't prove he exists. Because if you could prove him, then he'd be empirically knowable at some level that he's finite. But this scripture is telling us, actually, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. And here's an important verse. 
Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. It's an amazing analysis of how human beings become like the object of their worship. So when you worship something a great deal, you end up being distorted by it and you become more like it. And so people who worship money often become greedy or stingy or something else other than something noble. They get twisted into the image of the thing that they worship. And I want to be twisted into the image of the thing that I worship. I want to be conformed to the image of Christ. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The psalmist writes it three times in a row. Trust in the Lord. He's your help and shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. It's a wonderful depiction of the kind of God we serve. That we, we trust in Him. He remembers us. So God never forgets you. He says in His Word, Could a mother forget the child that's nursing at her breast? Though she could even forget that she's busy feeding a baby, God would never forget you. So this, we, we trust in Him, even though our lives are messy and things aren't going smoothly. And He says, I've never forgotten you and I never will forget you. And I'm going to bless you. Now the God of the Bible is uncharacteristic. He's not like other gods. In most other stories, this isn't a story, it's the truth, which is why it's good news. But in most other religions, the, the God isn't particularly helpful to the worshipper. The, it's amazing if you look at Greek mythology and you look at how self-obsessed those gods were. And they had all their own struggles and competitions between one another. And most of the time they were not doing much good at all to their worshippers. And their worshippers had to go to extremes to get their attention, like cutting themselves. And, and then maybe if you did the right thing, the God would grudgingly do good to you. The, the God of the Bible, the true God, is absolutely unlike the other gods. This God says it's His delight to bless us. That He actually wants to do good to us. And He even couldn't be stopped from doing good to His enemies. Because while we were still sinners and His enemies, He sent His Son to save us. So He paid the price for our salvation. What God picks up the tab? What God pays the bill for your mistakes? It's completely the opposite in other religions. You're constantly paying the bill for your mistakes. But this God paid the bill for our mistakes. He's so good. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. Worship does us good. Our God is good to us. Not only is God the most worthy of worship, not only is God the source and inspiration of true worship, God is the blesser of those who worship Him. So I'm making an appeal here that you understand that God sets forth the best terms, gives us the best laws, and offers us the best deal, and says, just... Come and be a worshipper of me. Come and love me and worship me and serve me. And that's 
possible through Jesus. Without Jesus, you couldn't really approach God at all. But when you become a Christian, you're saying, I trust you, God, that you've paid for my sins in the blood of Jesus and I receive your mercy for free because I can't pay for it. And now I will serve you with my whole life. I will give you my life. And God says, I won't forget you. I'll bless you. So just to move on now and talk for a bit about biblical worship. How do we see people respond to God? In the Bible, God's people sing praises. They sing joyful, loud, creative, new songs because His mercies are new every morning. So as you behold more of God, you, you know everybody who ever wrote anything about God hasn't said enough yet. And so you write a new song and you sing fresh praises to God. This is why I don't like, uh, like having like, a hymn book. I mean, it's good for 459 songs. I think that's how many our Anglican one had or something. Like a lot of songs. Maybe it was a Methodist hymn book. I don't know. Lots of songs, but not enough. Not enough. Because you're going to discover something more awesome about God tomorrow, and someone should write a fresh song about that. And so we have worship that should be creative. We should be learning new songs. We shouldn't only be singing... Shine, Jesus, shine, or shout to the Lord, or whatever your favorite Malagasy song is from 1967. You know, this is the problem with the church. We, we sometimes just settle into tradition, repetition, it becomes stayed, dead, meaningless. But this church, we want to have a kind of idea that we won't be singing the same songs. Some of them will be timeless but we won't be singing all the same songs in 10 years time so God's people sing praises and our worship is basically uh, involves singing when we're together and we've kind of compromised in style meaning we try not to be too loud or too soft or too crazy or too conservative because we have a congregation that comes from so many different nations, so many different denominational backgrounds. So we've had to compromise to a kind of friendly, mean, average, median, middle, some middle ground. But we never want to compromise on the heart of our worship. So we might have given you a form of worship that's palatable. Or maybe not as loud and exuberant as you would like. Or maybe not close to as prophetic as Bethel Church. Or maybe not nearly as fun as Hillsong. Or maybe not nearly as boring as an organ in a Methodist church that's 400 years old. We might have compromised in our style. But that's because of our composition of people. So we're actually adjusting how we worship to the people we are. But... What we don't want to compromise on is the heart behind the worship, which should be passionately committed to God. So I saw a Dutch guy in our congregation who would never lift his hands in his life. I don't know, maybe he has by now. But he was not charismatic in his bodily expression of worship. So I went to him and I said to him, tell me, are you worshipping? And he said, yes, I worship, I love singing, I lift my voice to worship. He doesn't lift his hands. Now that doesn't excuse you, but he had worked out in his conscience that his passion would be expressed by raising his voice and man did he sing loudly. I could hear his voice when he was sitting anywhere near me in the congregation. He was worshipping from a heart that's passionate for Jesus and his way of expressing it was by lifting his voice. 
another person might want to raise their hands. That's also in the Bible. And so don't look at that guy and say, ah, you're charismatic or Pentecostal. Next thing you're going to be speaking in tongues. It's in the Bible. So we will allow it. The issue is where's the heart? It better be in it. If you're standing there with your arms folded and you're not moving your feet and you're just standing there looking like this again, I don't believe your heart's in it. So as a church value, we worship by singing passionately. In the Bible, you see God's people also dance. David danced with all his might when the Ark of the Covenant was brought back to Jerusalem. And when we see by faith that Christ is risen and seated on the throne and all is how it should be in heaven, when we glimpse the majesty of heaven and the victory of our King, there is a celebration. So I don't dance very well because I'm European and just rhythmless. Thanks. That's what I was looking for. That encouragement. I can never be... I can never be... African the way African is in that form. That's okay. But the question is, am I going to sit down in worship or am I going to stand and at least express something with my body? So though I might feel like a hypocrite when we sing, we dance, and I'm not dancing so much. Inside I'm wanting to dance with all my might before my king. So again, it's a question of what is going on in your heart. Are you sitting there thinking, oh, I'm just a, I don't like this idea of dancing? Well, then you, do, you should. You should like the idea of dancing even if you don't dance. You understand what I'm saying? I'm trying to marry a concept to a personality. The idea is introversion or being a bit shy. But the question is, is there a passion in your soul for your king? Would you be passive? And unengaged in worship, or are you engaging every fiber of your being, even within the limitations of your personality? See, some people don't like loud or expressive worship. So I just have this Bible software that I, if I want to know how much is something in the Bible, I just like search for that word. So I searched for the word loud. Loud. I didn't even bother to go on to loudly because the point was made by the time I finished searching for the word loud. It comes in many places for various reasons. If people speak loudly or someone says something. Anyway, but also maybe nature or thunder. But it's more or less trivial. It's like one time in Genesis, one time in Exodus, one time in Leviticus, one time in Numbers, two times in Deuteronomy. Don't know how that happened. One time in Judges, one time in 1 Samuel. 1, 1, 1, 3, 2, 4, 3, 1, 3, 4 verses in Mark. Uh, seven verses in Luke, so Luke, like, he was quite deep, one verse in John. Can you see the different writers' personalities coming through and how they documented things? So that's how it runs. The word loud is in many books in the Bible, but usually only once. And we get to Revelation. 21 times. So if you want to know where you're going, is it quiet or is it loud? Because Revelation is a picture of John looking into heaven and the future and it's loud. 21 times louder than any other average book of the Bible. The point is in heaven there's celebration constantly. And so we as a church, our idea of worship when it comes to corporate worship should be celebratory. It should be unafraid of loud, not shine reserved. 
another biblical form of worship is people bringing offerings. There's a powerful dynamic at work in worshiping God with material giving. It's a simple thing. We pass a basket around, but it's not a simple thing at all. Because there is a warfare within the soul of each one of us when we make an offering to God. This money, though it gets spent on things on earth and God doesn't need it, it's commanded in Scripture that we bring offerings to God because God is teaching us to win the battle of subduing our other idols. So the fear of lack, the poverty spirit, the fear that I won't have enough, is a battle in every one of us when we put money in the offering basket. So when commands, God commands us to give, it's not because He wants us to have less, it's because He wants us to have more freedom, more peace, more joy, more trust in Him, less fear and anxiety over our finances. And so He says, okay, give and you'll discover that you'll still have enough. Give and I'll never leave you or forsake you. Give and you won't go hungry. Now, it's not a direct correlation. It's not because you gave that you don't go hungry. God's just saying, I'm not going to let you go hungry whether you give or not. How will you know? Test me, he says, in somewhere, Micah or Malachi. Malachi, I mean. You know, it's like he's actually saying, What you need to know is you can trust me. And you can't really be free until you can sleep peacefully knowing he's got everything under control. So we worship without giving, and it's simple. You put money in a basket, but it's deeply complex because it's a spiritual battle between where your faith lies and where your trust is. And God says, you can trust me as your provider. God's people's Sabbath. Now, this is an interesting one. We don't do it legalistically or ritualistically or ceremonially. We don't even, I mean, I don't have a, 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 a teaching on whether you should take a, a day off and not walk 100 feet or whatever 100 yards, whatever the Jews were under in the real law, they couldn't have an electric goat motor because you didn't use devices. And the, the law was complicated, but the, the understanding of a Sabbath to me is still relevant. It's still relevant because when I see people in, in Tanner on a Saturday and Sunday selling their goods at the market, doing business, I think seven days they labor. Even though the Bible says six days you shall labor and one shall you rest. They labor seven days in order to survive because they can't take one day off because they can't let God take care of them. The Sabbath was a question of worship and trust. Again, it's a question of do you see that God is able to take care of you? You can devote one day and just leave that stuff behind you. So... We shouldn't be economically stressed every day of the week. We shouldn't be trading, doing business. And as you take the gospel further into the society around you, sooner or later, some of those guys who have been working seven days a week should stop and work six days a week. And it will be a sign of increasing faith that they are worshipping God, knowing He can take care of them. And I bet their six days turnover would exceed seven days turnover. There's more. We worship biblically in response to hearing the word of God. When Nehemiah rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem and the exiles returned, the people gathered and they returned to the word of God. In Nehemiah, it's incredible, the people gather and they, they, they hear the word of God and they begin to lift up their hands. It says in Nehemiah 8 verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord. 
the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So even in response to the Word of God, as a church, we want to be a people who worship. That we say, God, you're amazing. We, we take your word seriously. Yeah. Where did worship happen? In the Old Testament, worship happened in the temple. And then John 4 verse 19, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. I think the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. That's John 4 verse 19. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus does something interesting. He shifts the place of worship from a sacred mountain or a holy temple and says it's actually an inside-out matter. It's a worship in spirit and truth. By Romans 12 in the early church, Paul's writing and we read in Romans 12 verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the perfect, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19 and 20 we read, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, who you, ha who you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Can you see there's this shift from a temple to a different temple? From being at a place like Jerusalem that doesn't matter anymore, but actually what matters now is what you do where you are. Standing in these two feet, in this skin and bone, that's the temple of the Holy Spirit and that's the place for worship. And so now you worship in spirit and truth, meaning from the inside out, from where you are. And suddenly it's not a specific day or a ceremony or a holy festival or it's all the time. 24-7. Yes. You belong to God. He dwells in you by His Spirit. And you worship all the time in everything. So this is now extending this idea of worship. Our bodies are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. We glorify God in our bodies. We are made holy for Him. We're not like the Gnostics who separated the physical and spiritual and then debased and degraded the physical into immorality. So in their spirituality, they were very unholy in what they did in their flesh. They got drunk and they were extremely promiscuous. The Gnostics were these enlightened, higher knowledge to discover God through kind of this Eastern philosophy of, of just like... Knowing something more that someone else doesn't know. Some secret or elevated knowledge. But in the physical, they were despicable. They were immoral. They were involved in all kinds of sexual corruption. And God comes and says, I'm redeeming your body as my temple. And you'll worship me in your body. So God, rather than degrading the physical, actually redeems it and elevates it. And claims it for himself. 
And so he says, when I come back, I'm going to raise you from the dead even to be eternally risen like Jesus, resurrected in a new glorified body and able to worship him forever. And so when we come to the concept, for example, like no sex outside of marriage, that's a, a deeply spiritual and holy issue before God. See, sex now is being redeemed inside of marriage. It's subjugated to God Himself and it's delightful in His sight as a celebration of the covenant Jesus made with His bride. Because marriage is a picture of Christ and His monogamous devotion to His church. Faithfulness to one partner forever. That's what Jesus is to His body, the church. And so, when we come to the idea of marriage, being a worshipper of God changes how you relate to marriage, to sex, to your body, to what you can do. Thus, worship extends to the depths and the breadths of our lives. That's the point I want to close with. Worship extends to the depths and the breadths of our lives. Our plans. Whether we work seven days a week. Whether we choose to buy this house or not. Whether we marry this person or not. It's all laid before God. He is above it all and He owns it all. So my decisions about my money are not mine. I worship God. Sometimes He tells me to be outrageously generous. And sometimes He tells me and I ignore Him. I'm just being honest. And sometimes I obey Him. You should obey Him. Sometimes He tells you put things in place as a routine. A pattern of how you live. Don't work seven days a week. If you can. I mean, I'm, I'm honestly painfully aware that a seven-day week doesn't work for some industries. Like, for example, if you're a doctor and someone's sick, I think you care for them. And Jesus said exactly the same thing when He healed on the Sabbath. So there is a time where Sabbath, I mean, all the time, Sabbath exists for man, not man for the Sabbath. But when it's based on a question of whether you trust God or not, yeah. that's the issue. And so one day... God comes to you and He says, reorder your life. Are you willing to order your life around Him? That's how you worship God. So my week is ordered around God and worship. Not worship in the sense of like, oh, it's 12 o'clock, I must get on my knees and sing a song and say a prayer. No, it's like how much I spend at super you is something I want to carry before God. That's what I mean by worship. It's that my whole life's decisions are ordered around my, my conscience being soft before God and me asking, is what I'm doing pleasing to you? How I live. Worship extends to faithfulness within marriage or celibacy outside of marriage. That's worship. It's not a morality. Yes, we call it morality, but that's not what it's about. It's about ordering your life around God. So in conclusion, the band, you can come up. Um, let's, let's get ready to sing our praises to God some more. We as a church are a people passionate for God's glory 24-7. Won't you stand, please? We are His body and our bodies are His temple. And we gather together on a Sunday to celebrate and worship with music and song and the Word of God.
We bring praise that's sincere and creative and reflects who God is to, in His Word. So, this is what we do. We sing. But please, don't leave here thinking worship is over. When you leave here, the musical celebration may be over, but your life must be worshipped for God. Father, we want to exalt you. We want to praise you together. We want to sing songs of love and adoration because you're an awesome God. And when we go out from this place, God, we want to go out as worshippers who worship the living God. Amen. Let's praise Him.